0: Once more, I would invite you to consider the statement which is to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in the 17th chapter and the 17th verse. The 17th verse in the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Sanctify them through or in thy truth. Thy word is truth. We are still looking, in other words, at uh, the truth which sanctifies. It is the truth that sanctifies, and we become sanctified as we are brought into the realm of truth and under the sway and the influence of truth. We have seen that our Lord is here praying for the sanctification of his followers for various reasons. And he indicates here to us the way whereby that sanctification is brought to pass, and we have emphasized that it is something that is not done immediately, but immediately through the Word, through the truth. And we are in process of considering how exactly that is done. Now last Sunday morning we took a a general survey of this truth as it is revealed in the New Testament in particular, but also, of course, in the Old Testament also. And we saw that there are certain characteristics of this truth. The last point I made is the one which provides us with a kind of connecting link for our meditation this morning. The last point was that this truth to which our Lord refers is a large truth. A great truth. The truth concerning sanctification is in a sense the whole truth. It isn't just some one department or one aspect. Repeatedly we've had to regret the tendency to atomize truth in a wrong way. It's right always to recognize distinctions, but if you press a distinction into a division then it probably becomes error and leads to heresy. So we were emphasizing the point that the truth, this word of God, which is the truth that sanctifies, is large and great and comprehensive, and that nothing is quite so fatal as to regard it as just one section, and to say, in effect, well, now we come to the truth of sanctification, as if that is divorced uh, from other aspects of truth, our emphasis being that it is the whole of the truth, every aspect of the truth, that ultimately is used of God by the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. But obviously, though, we say that it is a truth which we can uh, subdivide in an intellectual manner under certain big headings. The scripture itself does that, and it is right, therefore, that we should do so. Uh, God condescends to our weakness, and uh, he knows that it is easier for us thus to receive truth and to remember it and to retain it when it is presented to us under certain large groupings or headings. And thus it has always been the custom in the church to divide up this one great, comprehensive truth. The Word of God which sanctifies under various headings. And again, I would emphasize that they are nothing but headings. They are not discrete truths which can be isolated and separated from other truths. They are simply headings or subdivisions in the one, all-inclusive, comprehensive truth. And uh, it seems to me that we are not presenting the doctrine of sanctification truly, unless at it, we glance at some of these main headings of the truth which sanctifies. Uh, Clearly, we can't go into any one of them exhaustively. The object is, rather, that we may see that certain big principles are emphasized. And as we come to do this, there can be no doubt or any question at all as to which comes first. I wonder what our answer would be if I put that question. Which is the first heading when you come to consider in detail the truth which sanctifies? As you think of the truth which sanctifies, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? What's the first thing you want to emphasize? What is the first truth that lays hold upon you? It's very important, this. And I say that there can be no question whatsoever as to which aspect of the truth comes first, which heading should occupy the first position. It is, in other words, the truth about God himself. Now, I wonder whether we all would have started with that. Therefore, I want to emphasize it, because uh, I think we must all plead guilty to this, that there is a tendency, I'm speaking now to Christian people, and speaking especially to people who take the evangelical standpoint with regard to truth, is there not a danger and a constant tendency on our part, I say it with fear and trembling, to take God for granted? I mean by that to assume God. To imagine that because we are Christians, and because we are evangelical Christians, that we need not to consider constantly the truth about God himself. That's the truth we say that the unconverted need, of course, because they don't think of God. God is not in all their thoughts. God isn't in their mind. They're living a godless life. We think that we need to preach the truth about God himself to the unconverted. But a man who's a Christian. Well, he's obviously a believer in God, and therefore there is no need to preach and to present constantly the doctrine concerning God himself to such a man. There is a tendency, I say, to take that for granted. And I wonder what the result would be if we made a careful examination of large numbers of addresses and sermons on this doctrine of sanctification, I wonder how often we would find that the doctrine of God himself and concerning God has been preached and presented on such occasions. I think you would find the answer rather illuminating. The danger is, I say, the tendency is, because we start with this idea that sanctification is just some one department only, to forget that the first beginning of sanctification is the doctrine of God himself. Now, let me illustrate to you the point I'm making by putting it to you like this. And again, it's a matter which we must say carefully. Is it not right and true to say that again amongst the same people about whom I'm speaking, there is a tendency to pray to the Lord Jesus Christ rather than to God, God the Father or the Godhead. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that it is wrong to pray to the three persons of the Blessed Holy Trinity separately. There is evidence that that is a right thing to do in the Scriptures. You will find much more tendency to do that in the hymns. There is much more individual prayer to the three persons separately in our hymn books than there is in the Scripture. But it is, I say, seen in the Scripture. And yet, surely, no one can dispute this point, that in the Scripture itself, prayer is generally addressed to God in the name of Christ, through and by the Holy Spirit. But the prayers are addressed to the Father we cannot come to him except by the blood of Jesus in the name of Christ. We ask everything in Christ's name and for Christ's sake. But the prayer is ultimately addressed to him. I'm simply indicating that there is a tendency, and I think it's entirely due to this same reason, for people to pray more and more to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just another indication of the way in which, because our doctrine is not based four square upon the teaching of the scripture itself, but we have departmentalized it, that we somehow or another, it's a terrible thing to say, tend to forget God. Now, therefore, I am emphasizing the fact that the Bible itself always starts with God. In every respect, God uh, is at the beginning, and God continues right through. It's a book about God. It's all about God. And everything else is designed simply to bring us to God. So that not to realize that the doctrine concerning God is central, and always covers and overrules everything else, is, it seems to me, to fall into very grievous error. For if we are wrong at this point, it is certain we shall be wrong everywhere else. Now, again, is it not the case that in this matter of sanctification, our tendency always is to start with ourselves? Instead of starting with God, we start with ourselves. I've got this sin that's worrying me. I've got this sin that's always getting me down, this sin that defeats me. And my tendency is to say, what can be done about this sin, this problem of mine? How can I get rid of this thing? How can I get peace? I start with myself and with my problem. And as certainly as I do that when I'm considering this doctrine of sanctification, in some shape or form, I am sure to end by regarding God essentially as merely an agency who is there to help me to solve my problem which is a totally and thoroughly unscriptural view and an unscriptural approach to the almighty, ever-blessed God. I think I have quoted before from this pulpit a book which was written some 20 years ago by a distinguished American preacher, It doesn't matter that incidentally he happened to be a Roman Catholic, but the title of his book was this, Religion Without God. A startling title, and the contents of the book were equally startling because they were so terribly true. In many ways, religion may be our greatest danger. We can worship religion. And you can be very religious without God. I mean by that, that you can be very punctilious in the observance of uh, days and times and seasons. You can fast, you can deny yourself things, and the whole time you are just centering upon yourself and thinking about yourself, you're trying to improve yourself to make yourself better, you're trying to get certain blessings for yourself, the whole thing may be entirely self-centered, you may be highly religious. But God may not be there at all. At any rate, if he does come in, he is simply there as someone who may be of help to us. We are at the center. Our religion is rarely a religion without God. And that is, I suppose, the last and the ultimate sin. Now, the Bible, I say, if we pay attention to it, this truth about which our Lord speaks, makes that kind of position or of attitude a complete impossibility. Because the first truth of sanctification, according to the scripture, is the truth about God himself. A very convenient way, I find, of realizing that and of getting it fixed in my mind is to look at it in this way. The condition or the state of sanctification... And I repeat again, it is a condition and a state, and not merely an experience. The condition, the state of sanctification, is, of course, the utter antithesis to a condition or a state of sin. It is that which separates us from sin unto God. Very well, then. It's a good way to think of it, therefore, as that which is the exact opposite of sin. What is the essence of sin? Well, the essence of sin ultimately is to forget God. The essence of sin does not reside in the particular thing that I do. The essence of sin is to refuse to glorify God as he should be glorified. And all these actions of ours are but manifestations of that central disease, which is forgetfulness of God. That is why sometimes sin is defined very rightly as self-centeredness. It is. It's selfishness. Sin really means that instead of living to God and for God, and in the way that God desires of us, we live for ourselves and in our own way and after the manner and the fashion of this world. So that clearly, therefore, if that is your definition of sin, if you say the essence of sin is to be self-centered and self-concerned and forgetful of God, Well, then, sanctification of necessity must start with this. My relationship to God. Not my getting rid of this particular thing that's in my life. No, no. The first thing must be God and my relationship to him. And that is why, therefore, the Bible always, everywhere, starts with God. And that is why we say once more that sanctification is really that condition, that state in which a man lives his life under God, consciously under God, and for God, and for the glory of God. In other words, the main characteristic of the man who's sanctified is that God is in the center of his life. That's the first thing you must say about him. Before you begin to say what he does in action or what he doesn't do in action, you must be clear about this central, primary, most vital thing. And that is how the truth does sanctify us. It starts by holding us face to face with God. And it tells us the truth about him. The Bible is primarily a revelation of God. It isn't primarily interested in men, it's primarily interested in God. It's designed to bring men to a knowledge of God. So it's a revelation of God and tells us about it. And here again we must be careful to take the whole truth, because with our subjectivity we tend to be interested in God only from the standpoint of what we want. So there is a tendency always to think God only as the Savior. But the Bible tells us much more about God than that. The Bible gives us a revelation of the whole truth about God. We can't take in the whole revelation, but the whole is given. So it tells us about God as the creator, as well as God as the savior. It tells us about his greatness, his majesty, his might, and his dominion. It tells us something about the attributes of God. God. My friends, I'm sure that as I'm saying these things, you will agree with me when I say once more, startling and surprising though it sounds at first, the main difficulty with every one of us is that we forget God, that we don't realize who and what God is. It's all I say because of this subjectivity of ours, and we fail to realize. Even when we are engaged in prayer, what we are doing, whom we are approaching, we are so concerned about our desires and our petitions, we fail to worship. We fail to approach God in the way that the scriptures everywhere teach us to approach him. Now take that great twelfth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews that we read at the beginning. Its great theme is just this question of how to approach God. You go to the Old Testament. And you see, all that ritual and ceremonial, was it meaningless? Why were all these details given about the building of the tabernacle and of the temple? Why were the priests told to present certain offerings and sacrifices? Is this all meaningless? No, the answer is, it is all designed to teach men how to approach God, how to worship God. The Shekinah glory is something real and absolute. And people couldn't rush into that holiest of all whenever they liked. One man only went in, and that once a year only, and that always with blood. The whole of the Old Testament, in a sense, is just this great teaching as to how we are to approach God. Oh, yes, Sir someone, but wait a minute, that's the Old Testament. And don't you realize that Christ having come, everything is entirely different. It is different in this way that we no longer are dependent upon the Levitical ceremonial and so on, and that we have this great high priest. But let us never forget this, that the New Testament in the full light of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ still goes on emphasizing the importance of realizing what we do when we approach God. The fact that I don't go in the strict, detailed way that the ancients went, but that I go in Christ doesn't mean that I, therefore, need any less reverence. Let us approach him with reverence and with godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And the scriptures, therefore, promote our sanctification and our holiness by reminding us about all this, that God, the God whom we approach and whom we worship, is the creator of the universe, the sustainer of everything. There is no end to his might and his majesty, his dominion and his power. It emphasizes in a very special way his holiness. No one ever emphasized that more than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I must say it again. You never hear him praying, dear Lord or dear Father, Holy Father. That's the prayer of him who was without sin at all, who was absolutely perfect. When he approaches God, he prays, Holy Father. This is the truth that sanctifies, a truth that reminds us that God is in heaven and that we are on the earth, a truth that puts us into the right position and into the right setting. The greatest need of all of us is the need of being humbled. Our greatest lack is humility. It's our whole approach to God that's what. And the first great truth that we need to be taught is this truth that here overrides everything else in the word of God. It is the truth about God's holiness, about God's eternal justice, about his absolute righteousness. It is the truth that God is the judge eternal. Ah, oh, but you say, I'm a Christian, now oh, I'm surely not concerned about judgment. The Bible doesn't tell you that. This whole epistle to the Hebrews is just a warning to us to remember that we've got to meet judge uh, got to meet God as judge and as judge eternal. He's the one who shook the earth, that has now shaken the heavens. He is the judge of all men, and we must all appear before him. Now that is a part of the truth of sanctification. That isn't to be preached only in an evangelistic meeting. It's of the very essence of sanctification. It's the first principle of sanctification. But our God is a consuming fire. Or listen to John putting it, if you like. As he teaches this truth concerning sanctification in his first epistle, the first thing he lays down is this. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And I am suggesting to you this morning that you have no right to go on to consider any other aspect whatsoever of the truth of sanctification until you have realized that truly. Very well, then. having started with this great emphasis concerning the truth about God, it emphasizes in a very special way this fact. That salvation is God's plan. Now here again, let me put it in this negative way. Are we not sometimes prone to think of it like this? That salvation really is something that arises, in a sense, from men in this sense. That uh, God uh, is just waiting passively for us to come to him. And that if we go to him and ask him for certain things, he will be graciously pleased to give us those things. Our tendency is to think of sanctification solely from our side. The Bible puts it entirely on the other side. Sanctification, uh, Salvation is the plan of God. It is the purpose of God. It is the scheme of God. It comes from God. It originates with God. It is something which is worked out by God. The Bible puts it like this that God's great purpose in salvation is to separate unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Everything that has been done in this great design of salvation, he has that as its end and as its object. And we must of that. Every aspect, every movement, every incident, every event, it all is designed for that. Now, I have always found, again, if I may say a personal word, that there has been nothing that has so helped me with this whole question of sanctification. So much as to realize that I am simply one as a Christian who has been taken into this scheme and plan of God. I mean by that that instead of thinking of myself primarily and of my problems and of my needs and of my desires, I have awaken to the glorious, stupendous, thrilling fact that the great God who has planned this scheme of salvation has looked upon me and brought me into that. So that I don't start thinking of myself as myself. I see myself in God's plan and in God's purpose. Now, you notice that I'm repeating this because to me it is the root cause of most troubles. That great dame, Kirkagore, who lived just over a hundred years ago, He coined a great phrase, which has been very popular in the last 20 years. He said, religion is subjectivity. What he meant, of course, was this. He lived in a country where you had orthodox Lutheranism, which had been dead and petrified for a long time. The teaching was perfectly orthodox. It never said anything that was wrong, but it was lifeless. Kierkegaard saw that that, at any rate, was of no value. He said merely to hold a number of correct intellectual opinions and subscribe to a number of correct intellectual propositions. That's not religion. That's not the thing I find in the Bible, he said. That's not the thing I find in the lives of the saints. There was something vital, something living. Something happened to them. So he said, religion is subjectivity. He was, of course, overemphasizing He wanted to shock the people out of their dead orthodoxy. He was right in that. But in the end, he went too far. It's always the danger when you try to correct an error. The danger always is to put it in a striking manner that will shock people out of the error. Yes, but we must always be careful that we don't go into another error, which is the exact opposite to the one we are correcting. If he had said that in religion there must always be a subjective element, he would have been right. But when he says religion is subjectivity, he's wrong. It would be equally wrong for me to stand in this pulpit and say this morning, religion is objectivity. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this, that as you do tend to need particular emphases in different times and in different epochs, I have no hesitation at all in saying that the emphasis that is needed at the present time is the objectivity, because we're all so subjective in our approach, and we forget God. The truth is this, that we start with the objective fact and truth of God, and then you think of it as yourself in relationship to that. You are objective, you are subjective, it must be both. It isn't either one or the other, it is both one and the other the objective eternal truth outside myself, God's plan of salvation, then I myself brought into that so that I am aware of God dealing with me and the things happening to me. But my great and main emphasis this morning is that we must start with God and the fact of God and not simply with our own subjective moods and states and feelings and our own personal needs and problems. Very well, there is the truth in general, but there are certain particular emphases that I want to mention also. What is holiness? Well, I don't know a better definition of holiness than this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. That is holiness. Holiness is not simply to have certain problems solved in my life. No, you may get rid of certain sins from your life and still be far removed from holiness. Essential holiness is that condition in which a man loves God with his heart and his soul and his mind and his strength. And the greater the degree or the proportion of each part of the personality that is engaged in this love, the greater is the sanctification. So that to be sanctified does not just mean that you are not committing certain sins while you are enjoying that experience. No, no. That's a negative view. That's a corollary that follows. The essence of sanctification is this, I say that I love that God in whom I believe and who has been revealed to me with the whole of my being. And I don't hesitate to assert that if I think of sanctification in any lesser terms than that, I am being unscriptural. This is scriptural holiness. This is the holiness, the sanctification, that is produced and promoted by the truth of God because it is the truth concerning God. Then it follows from that, I think directly, that a man who does thus love God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength, because he is called upon and even commanded to do so, to such a man the main thing in life is to glorify God, and to show forth his praises. Do you remember the argument of the Apostle Peter in his first epistle in the second chapter? He puts that. He reminds these people that at one at one time before they became Christians, ye were not a people, but ye are now, he says, the people of God. Ye have been called out of darkness into light. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? What's the object of it all? That he may show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you know what praises mean there? It means excellences. It means virtues. It means these glorious, marvelous attributes. What is sanctification? Well, sanctification is that condition in which a man is praising God by being what he is. Of course, it includes not doing certain things, but it isn't only that. It's much more his being, what he is. In all the totality of his personality and in the whole of his life, he is revealing and manifesting the virtues and the excellences of God. God, of course, calls us to do that. You see, the whole of the biblical teaching about our sonship in Christ, our sonship of God, is the same argument Be ye holy, says God, for I am holy. The reason for being holy is that God is holy. My reason for being holy must not be, well, that I stop committing that sin so that I shan't suffer remorse and have the need of repentance and I shan't be miserable and unhappy. Not at all. I am to be holy because God is holy. Now, isn't that the teaching right through the Bible, the old and the new? Why did God give the children of Israel the Ten Commandments? Why did he tell them in detail what not to do and what to do? This was his argument always. Be ye holy for I am holy. He says you are my people. You are unlike all the other nations. I have adopted you. I have taken you. I have created you. You are my people. I want you to live as my people. I want everybody to know that you are my people. Let your life be such that everybody will know that you are God's people. And it's exactly the same in the New Testament. Let your light so shine before men or amongst men that they may see your good works, but glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's the way you've got to live, says our Lord, in the Sermon on the Mount. That's how I'm living. I live in such a way that people see me, but glorify my Father. And when he worked his miracles, people praised and glorified God. And you and I are to live like that. That's sanctification. And it's impossible, you see, unless we realize the truth about God. We've got to realize that our whole life is meant to be to the glory of God. The whole purpose of salvation is to make us such that we shall glorify God. And therefore the test of sanctification is not my happiness, not the sins I've given up so much as whether I am indeed concerned to live only and entirely to the glory of God. One other thing I would say would be this, that the essence of the Christian life and the Christian position is that we have fellowship and communion with God. Our Lord has already said that this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So that as Christians, our first and great claim is that we know God that we know the Lord Jesus Christ. The privilege that we enjoy as Christian people is that we are in fellowship with God. We are in communion with God. Our very calling ourselves Christians makes that specific claim. Very well then, says the scripture. Realize who he is and what he is. You remember how John works out the argument. He puts it like this. He that saith he knoweth him, and walketh in darkness, lies, says John, and does not the truth. In other words, he says that this Christian life is really and essentially one of walking with God in the light. And it's true, that is the Christian life. Therefore, he says, if we say that we are fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. He goes further in the second chapter and puts it like this. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You see, John's basic definition of sanctification is this, that it's knowledge of God which leads to a life that corresponds to that knowledge. In other words, we are interested in the commandments. How often have you heard in sanctification and holiness meetings the Ten Commandments preached, I wonder? But we've got to keep them. It's a part of the preaching, it's a part of the truth, the word that sanctifies. It's truth about God. And to be sanctified is to be in that condition in which we are walking in that fellowship, realizing what we are doing, and living to the glory of God. So it's still the truth about God which is applied in our lives. And you see, the result of all this is that we begin to understand what the Apostle Paul means when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, but you said, I thought the truth about sanctification is that which delivers me from every fear and trembling. It's that which makes me happy and which takes the struggle out of my life. I just enjoy it all now and I'm perfectly happy. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Well, because sanctification means essentially being in this relationship with God and realizing what it means. It's not the craven fear. It's the reverence and the godly fear that the author of the epistle to the Hebrews speaks about. It's the fear of wounding or offending or hurting such holiness and such love. It's the fear of marring his purpose and his plan and his scheme and his perfect work that is going on in me, for he works in me both to will and to do. I mustn't keep you. Shall I try and summarize it all up in a phrase by putting it like this? I notice that the Bible itself describes a sanctification always In terms of godliness, and holiness, and righteousness, I don't see that the typical characteristic biblical description of the sanctified life is victorious living, or the life of victory, or overcoming. We are familiar with these terms, aren't we? They've come in during the past 70 years or so. But the Bible describes sanctification in terms of godliness, God-likeness. That's its typical term, holiness, which is a description of God himself. You see, we tend to describe sanctification as the victorious life because we think of sanctification in terms of getting rid of particular sins. How am I to get victory over this sin? How am I to get victory in my life? You see, I'm starting with myself. I want victory. But the Bible describes it in terms of my relationship to God. How often do you, use, you, do you hear the term godliness used today? How often do you hear men described as God-fearing men? Those were the terms. Those were the biblical terms. Those were the great evangelical terms until comparatively recently, but the whole outlook has changed. We've become subjective, and I'm trying to suggest to you this morning that to that extent we've become unscriptural. Of course, if we are godly, we shall have our victories. But if you describe it only in terms of victories, you've got the negative view if you describe it in terms of godliness and holiness and godlikeness and righteousness, then your view will always be positive. And though you may not be guilty of certain sins, you'll still see yourself as a sinner. You'll still be dissatisfied. You'll still press on. You'll still strive. You'll still reckon yourself. You'll still go on reaching after it, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Whereas if you only look at it in terms of victory, the great danger is to be self-satisfied, to be content, to be smug, and to lead a superficial and incomplete and inadequate Christian life. The first message, the first aspect of truth, the truth which sanctifies, is God, the holy, righteous, eternal, everlasting God who in Jesus Christ has become my Father and with whom I can walk while I'm left in this life and in this world and with whom I shall spend my eternity. Let us ever approach him with reverence and godly fear. Let us remember that godliness is the aim. Amen.